Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. On the day after Martin Luther King Day, how do you tell youngsters about the differences in people? Black, white, or yellow, able or disabled people are still people. If they are different, it should make no difference. It makes sense to make sure that young people understand this, but how can it be done most effectively and when? That's our subject in this segment. Joining me in studio are Stephen Zwolak, CEO of the Loom Institute, a program to nurture the development of children. He is also executive director of the University City Children's Center. Tabari Coleman is the project director at the A World of Difference Institute of the Anti-Defamation League. Its mission is building understanding of diversity's value and benefits. Gentlemen, great to see you. Happy New Year. It's great Happy to see you. Tabari, let me begin with you, uh, just to be sure that we're all on the same page here. What are we talking about when we're talking about differences? Is it just race? Oh, absolutely not. When we're when we're talking about differences, I think it goes as broad as you can imagine, whether we're talking about religion, ability, uh, socioeconomic status, where you live, rural versus uh, urban, suburban. And so I think recognizing the different ways that people identify out in the world is the first starting point in helping us understand all of the differences that exist uh, throughout our nation. And Stevens Wallach, why is it important to get at kids early with well, all of this? For me, that's really obvious. But <laughs> um, what we understand about uh, development uh, is that children understand differences, all different types of differences, as early as six months of age. Uh, they, they, have, uh, they demonstrate di- they have color preferences, uh, hair preference, uh, glasses, no glasses, hat, no hat, and they're really becoming uh, citizens of the world. And they are, and at that point, they do have world language, so they're hearing things, uh, and they're very astute to all the pieces. So if we can really begin to embed uh, the, the the concepts of understanding differences in infancy, we are uh, really had the potential to change the narrative. Infancy. Now, that is getting Absolutely. an early start. Early it start. is. How do you start? Tabari, how do you, how do you start to, to, to make youngsters, very young youngsters, begin to understand differences and, in some cases, ignore them? Yeah, I don't think we really want them to ignore any of them, nor do mm-hmm. we need to help them understand those differences exist. As, as Stephen was just mentioning, they know very early on, as early as six months, that those differences exist. I think for families, it's about being intentional and not avoiding those conversations. I think so many of us have been taught to, you know, when you see someone who's different or they're acting different or whatever those differences might be, it's initially the thought is let's not talk about it let's avoid this you know i'm I'm thinking of a of a conversation my daughter and i were uh out shopping recently and uh a woman came up to her and and complimented her my daughter's four years old uh and this woman was missing a number of her teeth and 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 my daughter said oh you you don't have you're missing your teeth You, you don't have your teeth uh, and I think a lot of folks might have been really embarrassed by that. And, and although I was, uh, my reaction to her was, yeah, absolutely, baby. Some some people do uh, are missing their teeth. They, they do lose their teeth. I think it's being matter of fact with the child, not avoiding the situation, because I think when we don't have the honest conversation, what we do is we prepare them to avoid those same conversations as they get older. Uh, St- Stephen, um, what, what is the, the school's role in this? Well, it's it's rather enormous uh, when we think about um, in St. Louis City and St. Louis County that uh, uh, between uh, 75 and 80 percent of the children under the age of five are in care outside the home for 40 or more hours. Mm-hmm. So our our role has really gotten more intensified. 
So I, I, it, it's, it's multiple, it, it has multiple levels of it. Uh, if we want to influence children, we have to influence teachers who are teaching the children that are in their care. We have to help them become comfortable with their own implicit, uh, their own implicit biases, comfortable, first of all, recognizing them. So once the teacher begins to recognize, they can begin teaching differently. They can have those authentic, intentional conversations. They can also have the conversation, the clunky conversations with children about it. And there's nothing more beautiful than learning side by side with a child around those discomforts. And if we can do those pieces well, we can really bring families into into the mix because it's a it's a triadic relationship, particularly when we're talking about the race. What should children be looking for? Or teachers be looking for? The um, first of all, they need to look in the mirror <laughs> and understand who they are. Exactly. And um, and I think you know, looking at how children enter a classroom, how families enter a classroom. If you are doing home visitations, what? What? How receptive uh, are the families to uh, somebody from that's different coming from the outside to a home visit? That really, really does talk about the relation, the relational uh, uh, opportunities that there are for teaching as well as for learning. It's not teachers just teaching children; it's teachers learning from children, learning from families, and integrating that into a holistic system of understanding. And Tabari, as I understand, this is where you come in, because you do a, a lot of training, anti-bias training, as I understand it, in daycare centers and when these kids are at the, the, the youngest stage. Absolutely. So as I was listening to, to, to Steve, I was thinking about uh, the classrooms and, and having uh, educators do a cultural audit of their classroom, because I think that's really important that when families come in, when children come in, do I see people that look like me uh, in that space? Do I see people that look different than me? All of those are messages at the very onset of my development in that space. And it's important that those are diverse in a lot of different ways because it sends a clear message uh, both to the to the children and to the uh, to the families that come in. And I'd also add, you know, I, I think it's also important that people be uncomfortable making mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not all going to get this right the first time. I think it's important to model for children that, you know, we're all learning together. We're all going through this process of recognizing the differences that exist around us. And sometimes we may say the wrong thing or we may get it wrong and that that's okay. Now, what what kind of mis- mistakes specifically uh, are you coming across? Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my, my daughter's four. I think about her at her early child care center. There may be times where uh, issues come up around uh, playing, taking on different roles, you know, and so sometimes a boy may want to wear an apron, you know, and a parent might struggle with the child having that apron on if it's a boy uh, and express that frustration to the educators there and they don't respond in a way that mm-hmm. says, hey, you know what? We're all engaged in play right now, and this has nothing to do with gender identity. This has to do with just children being children. And so it's those sorts of uh, opportunities where they can revisit that. You know, So if in the moment they don't say anything because they're uncomfortable, they can then revisit that later and say, mm-hmm. you know what, actually this is the, a better way for us to handle this. You wanted to say something, Stephen? Well, it, it really opens up. We, we will often see 
child's play through our own lens. And, and, and it really becomes uh, very uh, clunky uh, when we see that child wearing the apron and, it, and how, how we feel about it. And, and the narrative becomes very judgmental when we mm-hmm. start, when we start uh, seeing these, these pieces. And then where do I go to have a conversation with anybody that's not going to judge my, my learning in this. And that, I think, is a huge challenge for teachers. Who do I go to to have a conversation with when I grew up in a, in a community where, you know, it was very segregated and I'm working in a more eclectic collection of families? Where do I go to have the conversation to even ask the question, is this okay? And I think the institutions need to be responsible for helping teachers learn that. And, you know, at Loom Institute, when we are teaching our teachers, we are bringing that narrative to the forefront and and really starting to provide a, we we believe, a safe, non-judgmental place to begin some of that narrative. Are we perfect at it? Absolutely not. But we're willing players. I, I understand the importance uh, of education and all of this, but I want to come at it for a moment from a different direction. And I'm going to start that with a, a short piece of music. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. Carefully taught from South Pacific from 70 years ago. The message still resonates, needless to say. But what I wanted to get to is the importance of the school is, is, is clear. But it really has to start in the home. I mean, that song puts it very, very clearly. If the parents are subtly or somehow overtly teaching their kids to hate, that's something you have to really work to overcome. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it happens in such a nuanced way. Uh, whether we're driving in the car, you know, when we're, if we see somebody that's homeless walking across the street, how do we respond? If we mm-hmm. see somebody panhandling, how do we respond? I mean, there's, there's so many interesting nuances. And, and some of the research that's out there, it says that you can have these wonderful experiences, but it's very easy to turn the switch on the negative, on the downhill side to that. It's much harder to stay integrous with, with uh, an open mind around the uh, concepts around diversity and the acceptance of it. And um, so I'm anxious to, to dig in as time goes on to more of the research that really talks about why is it diminished so fast? It doesn't take many experiences for, to, for a child to go, oh, well, well that's the way I'm going to believe now. And when we think about the influence of, of, you know, certainly families and teachers and knowing that that piece of research is out there and say it can diminish, we really need to look at the partnerships between children and families with some great intentionality. Yeah, and, well, and I'm, I'm thinking about this, that word hate. And I'm thinking about the people who are listening. I'm thinking about the people who I encounter uh, on, a, on a frequent basis and that hate is so extreme that – I don't want folks to think, well, 
that doesn't involve me, right? That doesn't pertain to me because I definitely wouldn't teach my child hate. I think it's those subtle things that we do and don't do that eventually can transform them into negative thinking about different groups of people. And so I never have to tell my child how to feel about white people or about black people. It's all about who I expose them to. And so I think about who I break bread with who I invite into my social space. If my daughter never sees anybody but people that look like me, there's a message there, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think that's a a little bit more um, uh, palatable for people to understand that it's those subtle things that they do. When when Stephen says, you know, there are the nuances associated with these dynamics and these relationships, it is about how we behave when we're out in the world and what they pick up on, who we speak to, who we don't speak to. All of those influence who they eventually will start to see as other. We're talking about uh, teaching children about difference. What about teaching their parents? Well, that's that's a part of our role. So through the World of Difference Institute, I get an opportunity to go into a lot of different spaces. When we're talking about uh, early child care centers, we don't just work with um, the educators there. We actually work with the parents, and we have a module where we go in and work with parents and their children. And it's really helping them sort of think back to when they were young and the different messages that they received about themselves that stay with them today. And then they can begin to see how they might be inadvertently making comments, doing things that have much longer lasting effect uh, on their child's psyche and development than they realize. And so absolutely, it starts with the parents. Um, There are some pieces that are are much larger than what the parents can deal with. These are societal Mm -hmm. issues. And so you turn on the television any day, you get a chance to see the way that we gear children towards uh, interest in certain products, certain colors. For a long time, my daughter says, you know, well, boys can't wear pink. Where does that come from? You know, they pick up those messages from a lot of different places. You know, it's so beautiful at University City Children's Center, uh, the environment that we have. You know, we're 30% African-American, 40% Caucasian, and and uh, uh, 30% other, which is mixed-race families. And we represent about 13 different cultures where English is a second language. And we also have families with incomes less than $5,000 a year to 250000 what a beautiful environment to have uh, children exposed to, you know, 40 hours a week where there is a mix. And to see uh, all children uh, um, banging around together and sharing and, and arguing and learning how to to negotiate with people of all different types. Yeah. And and it's so – I often hear – uh, adults say, "Oh, children are color colorblind." No, they are so astute right. to color and differences, but they are just more willing to talk about it and to be more receptive about it. It's a beautiful experience, uh, and this is what Loom has tried to grab from our, our lab school at University City Children's Center, and to take that and figure out how do we export those understandings. So, m- m- yeah. most schools, however, are not. Like the children said, we have to point that out. I have to take a break. We're talking about teaching uh, children, young people, about uh, the differences in, in our world and getting them off to the proper start. And my guests in studio are Stephen Zwolak with the uh, University City Children's Center and also Tabari Coleman, the project dire- director for the A World of Different Institute for the Anti-Defamation League. Back in just a moment to continue the conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
And welcome back. We'll continue our conversation on teaching children about differences and otherness, if you will, with Zabari Coleman and Stephen Zwolak. Um, Tabar, I'm going to come back to you and just back to this whole notion of the, of the responsibility of parents. Uh, it's clear. I think you both made the point very well on the need to uh, to do this. But what about Uncle Fred? Fred is not a parent. He shows up on Thanksgiving. He shows up at Christmas time, and uh, Fred's got a problem with uh, black people. He's got a problem with gays. How do you deal with Uncle Fred? Well, you need to have a conversation with Uncle Fred before <laughs> Uncle Fred comes to the house, okay? Everybody has people in their family that have different perspectives, different views. I know during the holidays there's hesitation about, uh-oh, you know, here's all these folks that are coming over. I think we have to set the groundwork for what our expectations are. I need anybody that comes to my house to know that this is what we value, my daughter's here who's still very much impressionable. And so I don't need you to agree with what I agree with, but we need to be respectful of one another and we need to value the differences that exist. And so if you can't do that, then we don't need to have you you present. And I'm not suggesting that we cut ties with people because I think that that's a part of the problem. It shouldn't be that I only surround myself with people that think like me or believe like me. I need my daughter to see all of those differences and I need all of the people who uh, I surround myself with to to show and model how we manage through our differences, because I think that there's a huge learning opportunity there. Uh, Stephen like you may not have uh, uh, access to Uncle Fred in your work. Well, you know, I, I, I really want to dovetail into what Tabari is saying. This is so critical. Um, how do we help children begin to understand uh, and, and respect when people have different opinions? And and that's who they are. And I think we spend an awful lot of time as adults trying to battle and 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 combat that when uh, and then children begin to learn the nuance of battle and combat as opposed to how do we respect. And uh, and, and again, Tavari really is right on. And this is kind of who he is. How do we model for children? How do we go to somebody who – and we're right now we're dealing with enormous differences of opinions uh, politically. And how do we not help children to dislike, hate, whatever – wherever they are on that continuum – uh, people that are different than we are or have different political views. I think we're in a really an interesting crossroads for this kind of dialogue and it, it manifests itself in all aspects of differences. Yeah. You know, when I, I, I found myself recently in working with educators um, pointing out that each of us has a responsibility to think about what message we want young people to take from our conversations. We don't have to feel the same way. We don't have to be on the same page. But what are we teaching young people? You know, because they're still very impressionable. And we have a responsibility to ensure that they understand critical thinking about these issues. Because I think we all benefit from recognizing differences. Yeah, having differences of opinion is not always a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it can be a very instructive and educational thing. It's really a question of tone and, and content. Right, yeah. right. Um, well, while we're talking about this sort of thing, we have to go to what's what we're seeing and hearing in the news today. And I'm wondering your reaction to this with regard to the way young people are, frankly, listening to comments from our president most recently talking about peoples from Africa and Haiti and other places and, and the language he's used. He's very, very public about that. Tabari, what's, what's your take on how young people may be responding to it? And number one, if they are responding to it, 
How do you teach them what's what's right and wrong in this? Look, I I can easily try to scapegoat the the, the president as being the only person who uh, makes inappropriate comments, who uh, can be divisive. All of those things are true. And at the same time, there are a lot of other folks in our community that are engaged in similar uh, behavior. I'm not defending him. I want to be clear about that. But I'm also trying to not make it just about one person. And so young people are hearing this. They're hearing this. uh, And in many ways, they may feel like, well, then it's acceptable to engage in that way. But we have a perfect opportunity as members of a community, as educators, as folks who are uh, working with young people to talk about ways in which we can we can reflect on language that's used and how that can be helpful in moving conversations forward right i don't want to tell people how what words they should use or not use i want them to recognize that there's differences amongst all us all of us and that we need to figure out ways of talking more effectively uh, it's a perfect opportunity to look at communication styles and strategies you know here here's a perfect example of why um using certain language can be more divisive overall. So let's not make it about a person, but about an issue. So, Stephen, it's a, it's a teachable moment then. Yeah, I, I see it as a, a – right now I'm saying, oh, bless his little heart. Uh, <laughs> trying my best uh, to, to, to live through uh, so much. But it's, it's out there. It's divisive. And, and it's it's exposing the the raw nerves that are that we all that have been festering for for decades, yeah. and um, I, I, I get that the the piece that I really struggle with are the nuances that we're experiencing on a day to day basis that may not be as that may not be as um, as overt as that because they're the, the the nuances are the ones that stick a little bit more. And they fester, and they're mildly uh, accepted, and they go, "Oh yeah, sure, sure, sure." That is a problem. And whether it's a teacher with a look or an off, off, off the cuff comment about uh, race, these are really challenges. Um, or, or somebody saying, oh, "All poor people live in the city." We say things like that. We hear things like this, and these are embedding in a very safe way. Uh, very unhealthy comments that that are going to last longer than the big divisive statement. Absolutely. And and, and here's another point I want to make. These issues have been present forever, right? I'm 41 years old. All of these comments that people have made, I've, I've heard them from educators. I've heard them out in the community. So when I say I'm not trying to scapegoat our president, I'm trying to say that what he has done has allowed other people to feel comfortable in their own ignorance and in their own hate. But those folks have always been here, and we have not been intentional about having these conversations. We would much rather avoid them because we would want, we want to be comfortable. And so then we do that with children. We avoid those conversations with children so then they don't have the skills nor the tools to be able to address these issues as they show up. But, you know, the, the volume is so much louder today because of the media. I mean, yeah. it's omnipresent. Uh, the, uh, kid, young kids have, have cell phones and they're hearing all of this on their phones or their tablets or what have you. They're hearing it on the television set, cable, what have you. Uh, it's it's a little – the language is has been around for a long time, but the volume is much higher. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it is, and and cyberbullying has been around for a long time, and the use of of uh, social media and the way that young people interact. Go on to any. I, I try to avoid using uh, reading any of the comment sections uh, as as you go through any social media because people feel like they can say whatever they want to say, uh, and what that does is young people see that and then they react accordingly. I think when we're when we have a chance to have that FaceTime, we need to be using that in ways that that give them a chance to to challenge and be challenged, right? To have somebody face to face ask them where they where that came from and why they believe or think those things or even saying those things. It, it really gets for me. It keeps going back to what's the relationship between the parent and the child and the teacher child? What kind of a dialogue? What type of a dialogue can I have? Uh, how authentic, how clunky can it be? Putting humanity to the conversation to, you know, to, to share discomfort. And I think with, with young children, when we start that very young, there is, it gives us an opportunity to grow. We, we know um, teachers and parents, teachers teach who they are and parents parent who they are. And so we're getting generations of baggage that comes out, and it becomes very watered down and nuanced. So as we are engaged with children to be intentional and be more mindful of where did that come from. So if I grew up in a household that was full with bias and prejudices, and there's an ounce of intentionality to it, and to begin to, to unpack that, it really can change the family narrative. Absolutely. So, well, and I, I think about early child care centers and the commitment that they all can make. You know, there's a re- there's a responsibility that they have. There are clock hours that they need to achieve. But how do we put this at the forefront and saying that uh, we're going to create space for opportunities for organizations like our own programs, like our early childhood anti bias training, to come in and engage their educators to engage their families, but not just as a, as a, okay, we'll, we'll do this uh, one time, you know, so we can say that we did it, but actually realize that there's value in revisiting this uh, quarterly, you know, um, a couple times a year, at least to, to keep it at the forefront of their minds. You have both used the word uncomfortable disc- discomfort with regard to conversations like this. How do you overcome that? How, what advice do you have for, for, Allowing the parent to feel comfortable in these conversations. Well, for, for, in, in the space of both Loom and University City Children's Center, we really want to, it, it, the discomfort can be unpacked if there's a relationship. And I think when you develop a relationship that's safe and trusting, and I'm telling you, that's not, that's not so easy, mm-hmm. particularly if you have a, a life script that says it, it doesn't work. So I think it's at least putting it out there and and continue to build trust and to hear and to listen and as hard as it is, be nonjudgmental and allow it to percolate and come to the surface. I think it's incredibly challenging. No question. Tomorrow? Yeah. Well, this idea of comfort, um, I think feeling comfortable is a luxury that not everyone yeah. is afforded. And I think we need to start with that. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we want people to feel uncomfortable, but we want them to recognize that for a lot of different reasons, people are uncomfortable. There are people in the centers, there are families in the centers that, that are struggling because they don't get a chance to bring all of themselves into that space. 
the way that we approach this work through the World of Difference Institute is we really are meeting folks where they are. Uh, it really is about setting forth some basic premises so at least we all start off on the same page, recognizing that bias is universal. Mm-hmm. Each and every one of us has bias through socialization from our families, from the media, from our schools, the communities through which we grew up and we live in. Um, I think when we all recognize that, that that's where we are, then we can build from there. Uh, having conversations in meaningful ways and allowing people the space to be vulnerable, to share things that otherwise might be uncomfortable because, again, one of our premises is to assume goodwill, assume good intent. You know, if I can show up as I am and share what I actually feel and the community I'm sharing it in, doesn't mean that people don't get upset or angry or frustrated, but they work the issue. How long does it take to turn someone around? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. I, I would say that uh, it takes a lifetime. I think that this is a journey that we're all on together. Now, that doesn't mean that significant uh, changes don't happen in people's lives over a shorter period of time. But I think we have to recognize that throughout our lives, we have to unlearn so many of the negative yeah. messages, so much of the socialization that we have been taught about different groups of people. And it happens every single day for the rest of our lives. Still, uh, a worry is that, um, and we're seeing schools and organizations, they do diversity training and they check the box yeah. and they go, I've done this training and now I am, I am, I'm evolved. My, my hope and my goal is uh, for organizations like Loom Institute and World of Difference to do their trainings that it becomes embedded and it's not a training anymore. It's part of the day-to-day narrative, and it becomes a lifestyle, and it's not every quarter. It's every minute. It's every moment you're engaged with another person. We're going to have to end it right there, gentlemen. I want to thank you both so much for being with us and talking about a subject that uh, is increasingly important, it seems, in today's world. Stephen Zwolak, great to see you, CEO of the Women Institute and Executive Director of the University City Children's Center. Tabari Coleman is the Project Director for the A World of Difference Institute of the Anti-Defamation League. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.